Today's guest is Carolyn Grace Elliott. Carolyn is the author of Existential Kink, Unmask Your Shadow and Embrace Your Power, A Method for Getting What You Want by Getting Off on What You Don't. Carolyn is also the founder of Witch Magazine, formerly Bad Witches. It's a website with articles on practical magic and some of my articles from way back in the day on like the dark side and some other things I don't remember up there. And um, I actually met Carolyn in One Taste, which was the matriarchal organ cult that I was in for a while. If you haven't checked out my solo podcast on when I was in a matriarchal sex cult, I highly recommend you check that out. Uh, but I met Carolyn there and Carolyn was one of those people that opened my eyes to things that I used to, for my skeptical mind, I used to roll my eyes at like the idea of magic and mysticism. And really, I mean, at least the this is my interpretation. All of this magic stuff, when employed in a practical way, it's just another lens to dealing with the unconscious. Like, at least the way Carolyn speaks about magic, it's not that different than the way Carl Jung speaks about dealing with the unconscious. They're both ways of diving into abstractions that are not part of our conscious ego's awareness and tinkering with them so that we can create better lives. And yeah, I mean, that's basically what her, her book is about, Existential Kink. I love the book. I, I listened to it while biking around. Uh, I listened to the Audible version while biking around here on Thailand, in Thailand, and I've recommended it to many people. And it was really fun revisiting certain ideas that I haven't really engaged with directly since I was in One Taste and indulging a little more magical thinking and being able to like kind of synergize it in a very practical way. Because the verbiage around magic and mysticism, obviously, is not for everybody. I don't always use it myself, but it is a very practical application of spirituality and it does require a high level of consciousness, not in like the namaste sense or like the paying lip service sense, but in, in order to employ existential kink, which she explains in this podcast, you actually do need the ability to zoom out of, of situations and like uh, zoom out of like the troubles of your life and be able to look at things from a higher perspective, what we could call a higher consciousness. So this was a very fun episode. Um, I learned a lot. Um, I had a lot to think about. I have a lot to think about. I'm going to ponder my life and do some existential essential kink a little bit later. Right now, you are listening to episode 082, Carol Elliott, Existential Kink. You're listening to the Rwando Podcast, part of the Gotham Podcast Studio Network in New York, New York. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe and rate it wherever you listen to podcasts. And we're going. I'm here with Carol Elliott. Great to see you again. Hi, Ruan. Great to see you. Yeah, I think the last time we spoke, I think was a podcast, which must have been many years ago. Uh, it's our thing, apparently. I guess so. Yeah, I vaguely remember you stopped in uh, Midtown. I think you were coming back from Bali. You stopped in Midtown, and I tried to. I was I was driving a taxi at the time, and I tried to meet you at the bus station, and then I didn't see you. And then that was the last. That was our last interaction. I think. I don't know what year that was. Maybe 2016 or something. Um, but anyway, I, I want to talk about your book. I love it. Um, I listened to it. I. I like in two days. Uh, I've been recommending it to a lot of people. It's been awesome. Um, but before we talk about existential kink, I, I would love to know what your life has been like in the last couple of years. I know a lot of things have changed. Oh, yeah. Well, I fell in love with a nice Pittsburgh boy, just like I always right. wanted to. Nice Pittsburgh man. <laughs> and uh, got married. I have a little house in a cute little neighborhood. And um Got two stepsons, got a little baby daughter, Eleusis. Um, I've been participating fairly a lot in medicine ceremony work. I've traveled to the Amazon to do that. Um, a lot of online teaching and coaching. Mm -hmm. I have a, a life coach training program, Existential Kink Life Coach training program called Game of Sovereigns. We were doing that cool. in LA with um, 
Dave Burns, uh, but we couldn't do our last one in LA, obviously, because of all the virus and stuff. So we did it online. Um, hmm, what else have I been doing? Reading and writing a lot. Yeah, that's well, a lot of things. It's <laughs> a, a, a good amount. Yeah. Yeah, because I, I, I think I mean it was many years ago, but I think we were speaking last time we spoke was uh, you had just had some big breakthroughs in money, and I think you were sharing like, oh yeah, your neck thing was like relationships and then the next thing I knew from you you were married and had a child and had many children and it's like that was uh as a quick manifestation at least from my perspective (laughs) (laughs) thank you no it is it was quick it's uh, it's interesting how existential king can work like that I guess we could talk more about that a little later yeah I mean very shortly but you did mention the medicine ceremonies it's interesting because um you mentioned Brown, and I don't remember if you mentioned it by him by name, but I did a ceremony with Brown in Peru uh, very randomly. Yeah, I think it was um, in 2017. I don't know what years are, but it was a couple of years ago. I was, you know, Louisa? I was visiting Louisa. Yeah. yeah. And then we happened, like, we heard other some American shaman in town. Do you want to do a ceremony? I was like, oh, okay, sure, whatever. And it turned out he's from Pittsburgh, and he knew a couple of Pittsburghians that... Anyway, so this is cool reading the book. And I was thinking about, because you mentioned ayahuasca a few times and I had a great experience with them. And I was like, oh, it was the same person. Crazy. Um, anyways. Weird. Yeah. That's yeah. weird because there's like 500 shamans in Iquitos. <laughs> That's interesting. And uh, what's also interesting is 2017, that was before I ever worked with Brown. I only started working with him in um, well, like 2018. So interesting. Okay. Yeah, yeah. wild. What, what a world. And actually, I do want to say, I mean, uh, I don't know what his presence on or if he promotes himself or anything like that. I, I've done it uh, quite a few times and it was by far the best experience with him. Like, I, mm-hmm. yeah, it was, uh, well, we could talk about, we could talk about my <laughs> ayahuasca experiences maybe, maybe later. Um, Existential Kink, love the book. I, I've heard you speak and teach about it prior to the book coming out. Um, but can you share what that means for those who don't know? Sure. So the idea with existential kink is that all of us humans have sort of secret taboo desires that we keep hidden even from ourselves. Um, and these are desires usually for things that kind of contradict what our ego wants. So our ego usually just wants good stuff, uh, you know, wealth, love, health, creativity, all of the stuff that promotes survival. Um, So it's very strange, but there seems to be a part of us that is interested in experiences that don't necessarily further our survival, that don't necessarily further our status, that are just experiences. Um, So this phenomenon of having hidden secret taboo desires was very well known to Freud and Jung and all the founding fathers of psychoanalysis and everything, but it got less talked about um, in popular psychology and self-help, basically because the idea is pretty darn offensive to our usual conscious minds, because the idea is that it's possible for us, a part of us, a secret part of us, to actually desire things that are painful, embarrassing, frustrating, Um, And who knows exactly why, could be karma, could be generational trauma, could be, I think it's just the human condition that our souls are interested in the whole spectrum of experience, including the 
of the rough bits. So with existential kink, basically what we do is we practice recognizing that uh, incarnated life is a kind of kinky game. So sort of just like all over the world, people who practice BDSM, they set up scenes and agreements and safe words with their partners and they create a scenario where they, they experience sensations that maybe in daily life, they would not like those sensations, but within the context of the container and the agreements, they're able to give themselves permission to really enjoy and get off on sensations that they would not otherwise. So what's interesting with existential kink is we're talking about all of life. So there's obviously there's no safe words in life. You can't, you know, just yell out red and make everything stop. Uh, but what we can do is we can give ourselves a container of, um, of a meditation practice. So I suggest 15 minutes that people set a timer um, and just practice remembering their actual identity as a vast soul, a vast consciousness that decided to have a fun incarnate experience and go into the sensations connected to whatever situation it is in their daily life that they don't like and experiment with seeing if they can find a way to be in relationship with those sensations that they can let themselves experience them as pleasure instead of just, oh, this is so terrible, I want this to stop immediately. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a good part of it. And actually, it's usually very easy for people to experience sensations that they previously didn't like as pleasure. That's the easy part of existential kink. The more challenging part is once people begin to realize like, oh, I do kind of enjoy this. You know, maybe a common example um, would be, feeling anxious or stressed out about money matters and how am I going to pay the rent and how am I going to pay these bills? You can kind of tune into that and find that that anxiety is physiologically, it's arousal. There's a, you know, the heart beats faster, the cheeks flush. There is a certain pleasure in it. Once we realize that pleasure, the next step is to find approval for that secret taboo desire. Um, to really say to ourselves, like, it's actually okay that a part of me enjoys this. Yeah. Because in, until we do that, until we really make that taboo desire not taboo anymore and really accept it, uh, it tends to keep repeating itself and playing out. Yeah, you, desire... you mentioned that quote by Carl Jung throughout the, the book that I want to also, I wrote down so I could also say it, is that until you make the unconscious conscious, it will rule your life and you'll call it fate. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting because like, I mean, not everyone is familiar with BDSM, so it might seem like a foreign concept, but anyone who likes watching horror movies or adventure movies where things get blown up or like weird stuff, like there's a reason why you, I mean, some part of you is entertained by whatever it is. You just know you can turn off the TV. So it's kind of like, well, it is kind of like uh, you said, you can't, you can't call red, but if you do adopt a certain model of reality that you did just come down for a temporary existence well this is just a, a trip and maybe you wanted to have some rough spots in the trip is that right yeah precisely i mean absolutely nobody would watch a movie where only good things happen even in comedies you know the characters get into big pickles and have to figure it out it's like 
we have, just like you were saying, an attraction to drama. And the thing is, is if we can just admit to ourselves, wow, I like this drama in my financial life, in my love life, in my health, in my creativity. I like it everywhere. I love the drama of feeling not good enough. I love the drama of feeling in bondage to other people's expectations. I love, you know, just really, really get super honest and admit that that enjoyment is not just limited to movies and TV, that it goes deep down into our lives. And really give ourselves permission to receive that enjoyment and to drink it all in and really, really have it. And as we do that, the compulsion to create that drama gets less and less. Yeah, it's kind of like um, a different way of not dissolving the ego, but like you're really like, I'm really just a character in this movie. And sometimes this character is naughty. And that's just how it has to go. Or sometimes this character is whatever the victim. I mean, it is uh it is it is kind of like it is a challenging spiritual i don't know reworking of your perspective oh yeah yeah definitely so it's um it, and that's why it takes practice like that's why i recommend that people work on it daily um because it does take time like applying this context and this perspective shift of it's truly a game it's truly you know, like a movie and we can enjoy it in that same way uh, is definitely hard because this is, gosh darn, it sure is a compelling world. Everything seems so tangible and so dire. And of course, we don't want to deny or suppress any emotions or any grief that we have in connection to experiences or situations. Um, but existential kink is, I find it interesting because... Um, our culture is very into grieving and bemoaning in, a, in an extent. So if something bad is going on in your life, you know, there's therapists you can easily find who will sit and listen to you talk about how terrible it is all day and they will agree with you. <laughs> and that's so wonderful. I think that's so, so needed so much of the time. But there's also a point that sometimes we get to where we're just like, hmm, I think I'm done grieving this. I think I'm ready to have a different relationship with whatever this thing is. And I'm excited for Existential Kink to offer that kind of new horizon of possibility for folks to be in relationship with their dramas and their struggles. Yeah, for sure. I've always, not always, but more recently, I've thought like success is really just being able to choose your problems. Like it's not being problemless. That would be boring. <laughs> right. Um, I want to ask you about one thing that is kind of like an assumption throughout the book, and it's something that I, I believe in, but I've been challenged by. And actually, in one taste, uh, I had this uh, debate with someone um, who is a recovered uh, drug addict, and it was, the assumption was you create your own reality. And I was, I'm still very into the idea, but he was saying, oh, what's, for some people, that is a very dangerous idea. And he was saying, like, oh, addicts have killed themselves with this idea of, like, oh, my God, if I create my own reality, why did I create all this terrible stuff? And I know, I know you're, familiar, uh, you're familiar with addiction and have experiences. And I was curious what you say to that, because I, I didn't have a response to what you said at all. Yeah, so it's, it's difficult to talk about because... Um, well, there's layers to it. One of the important layers, I would say, is that um, a key element to waking up magically, to waking up spiritually, is learning to not shame or blame oneself for what one has created and understanding that the level of creation. So most people don't consciously create their 
experience. Um, I would say for most of us, most of the time, it's more the collective unconscious that's creating what we're experiencing um, and include and things in our personal unconscious. And there may be things in that personal and collective unconscious. So for example, I'll just take my life. Um, uh, I was born into a situation where um, my father was brain damaged. Uh, oh boy, this is okay. This is going to go on its own huge tangent. Mm, let me rearrange this a little. It's bit totally here. up to you. I mean, I'm happy. To, <laughs> I know. I'm I happy know. to go on a tangent, but we don't have to go into early it. Early in the morning to dive yeah. into that. Uh, let's let's just put it this way. Um, we all have. <laughs> it gets it gets difficult to talk about the unconscious because it's the unknown. It's what we mm -hmm. don't consciously identify with. But anyways, we all have patterns in us, in our souls. Um, and those patterns draw forth certain situations, certain experiences. Uh, and it usually happens without our conscious awareness. And as far as I can tell, it takes a lot of work to become aware of what those patterns are and to fearlessly say like, hey, yes, there was some really terrible dark stuff in here. I was about to get started talking about my experiences with rape and sexual assault and all sorts of, ugh, not nothing that anybody would consciously be like, oh boy, sign me up for that, right? Um, except that I truly believe that some part of myself, my soul, was interested, compelled, fascinated by those experiences, just like people are interested, compelled, fascinated to watch, you know, movies where that kind of stuff happens, just really interested in it. What is that like? What does that feel like? And realizing that, so a huge part of existential kink for me and, and that I like to teach people is really understanding that, so our ego tells us that it's only okay and we can only feel good about creating things that it likes, <laughs> safe, sunny, whatever things. And part of the existential kink process is learning that we can love and approve of ourselves even as we recognize that our souls are involved in creating darker things that that doesn't have to mean that we're so bad or so terrible. What it means is that we are human and exactly like everybody else. Um, my perspective these days with it is fairly metaphysical and I struggle with that because I know that a lot of people haven't had, you know, deep experiences of <laughs> their, their whole series of incarnations. And it can sound nutty when you just start talking about it to somebody who hasn't had those visions for themselves mm -hmm. yet but it also just practicing this attitude of relating to my life like it's a, a kinky scene or a kinky game tends to take you deeper and deeper into that awareness of yourself as a soul who is down for the whole gamut of experiences and finds them all fascinating and all lovable so another way that I talk about existential kink is it really is it's just a practice of unconditional love and the thing is, I find it funny because there's a lot of spiritual circles where um, people will give lip service to unconditional love, but actual unconditional love is gross. It's embarrassing. It's, you know, because it involves 
super humbling oneself to things that are so bad and so awful and um, and basically really not judging, really mm-hmm. surrendering that judgment and really relating to the world as an aesthetic experience instead of a moral experience. Yeah. Um, well, as you're saying that, what came to me is like, oh, if, you, if you're if you going to accept that you create a reality, you also have to accept, I mean, the the acceptance is not just of yourself, it's also of the reality. So if you can approve of this terrible act, uh, that wouldn't make, I mean, using that other person's example, it wouldn't make you go into this terrible spin. I mean, it's all one thing, right? Yeah. yeah. And of course, it's, it's very tricky and it's easy to get hung up on this. And I always emphasize to people to never start with applying the principles of existential kink to the most traumatic, painful experiences in your life to always just start with your daily frustrations. I think the, the, the gentleman who pointed out to you the idea that, um, you know, creating your own reality can be a terrible idea for some people. I think that's very, very true for people who are really dominated as addicts, especially tend to be, I know, because I was one, by shame and by guilt. Um, When somebody really has that running, it's like they don't have the free positive energy in their system, the, the kind of playfulness and perspective available to be able to start looking at their lives and being like, hey, you know what? Maybe I create stuff that's awful and stuff that's wonderful. Maybe I'm just infinite like that. Um, And that's, again, why regular recovery work, regular grief work is fantastic for folks in those darker positions. And probably existential kink is more for people who have been down a lot of personal Mm -hmm. development and healing roads already and are just kind of looking for the next horizon and they have some humor and they have some perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Cause the ma- the major pre prerequisite seems to be, you don't take things that seriously or you can take things not seriously. Um, can, can I ask you about the addiction thing? If, if you don't mind, cause like I noticed you said I was an addict and um, I'm actually, I'm having an addiction expert on tomorrow and I, I was going to ask him at this as well, but like I have um, I've always had issues with the first step. I mean, I've, I'm somewhat familiar, like just the idea of proclaiming I am an addict, I am powerless, just seemed like not cool for me, like to label yourself. And I have a lot of friends in recovery and they might've been sober 20 years and they say, I am an addict. I can't, you know, I was like, maybe you're not anymore. Maybe, I mean, I'm curious what you think about that. Yeah. So, oh boy. Um, So for 10 years, I... You know, I said that every day at meetings. Hi, I'm Carolyn. I'm an addict. Um, And for me, accepting that part of the first step was really super necessary. I was, uh, you know, totally abstinent from all substances other than nicotine and coffee for 10 years. And um, I look at it as sort of like, you know, in Buddhist Tantra, before they teach you the weird tantric stuff, they make you spend a long time doing regular ascetic Buddhism, where you are abstaining from stuff and everything. I sort of see it as my little ascetic training ground there, learning how to be basically honest and surrendered and things like that. Uh, I have, well, I have some interesting thoughts about the 12 steps. Um, and how 
they they're very very beautiful i think they're like america's greatest contribution to the spiritual life of the world anyways what i'm trying to say is i say that i was an addict um now because it's no longer my experience my relationship with substances is not nothing like it was back when i was 17 and i was struggling so much and and I actually, I talked to the woman who was my sponsor for those 10 years that I was in meetings all the time. And her reflection to me was just like, you know, it's interesting, Carolyn, because she knows that I go to medicine ceremonies and drink wine with dinner and stuff like that. And she was just like, I think the reason why your life has continued to be good is because you still really ask yourself penetrating questions and you're always reflecting and you're always, you're not going into a victim mode, basically, because I think that that's kind of the crux of um, addiction is is feeling like, um, you know, how they talk about resentment and the triangle of self-obsession and everything like that is like getting into this mode where the world has hurt me. So that means that I have free license to obliterate myself in some substance or behavior. Anyway, <laughs> what I, I don't know. <laughs> I think it's, I love it. I love how they actually, I love in meetings how they tell people to say that for the rest mm -hmm. of their lives. I think there's a deep wisdom to that. Wow. It, for me, it was just after about 10 years in, something was rearranging itself in my being, and I started being drawn to the weird tantric medicine path, which is not mm -hmm. as compatible with the ascetic abstaining path. Yeah. Or from like the movie analogy, you just got bored with that channel. Is that, <laughs> is that fair to say? I don't mean to oversimplify. But. Um, well, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I do think that maybe some sort of healing, some sort of reordering happened with my brain and my consciousness where it was just like the sort of insatiable, self-pitying, resentful drive that I used to have, which if I had relapsed in that mode would have taken me into yucky, yucky places that part of my character actually resolved, changed. It was no longer the way that I related to the world. And so now um, I'm just able to have a, a better, more, I guess I would say, normal relationship with substances. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Uh, cool. Yeah. So I loved a lot of the, the, myth, myth, the myths that you shared with throughout the book. Um, and, and one was the Persephone and Pluto uh, myth. And one line that you brought out, which kind of relates to the, the, the rape thing we mentioned, but it was the idea that Persephone in some way created Pluto, or Pluto was her other half, even though he was the perpetrator. Um, could you say a little more about that? Because I, th I thought it was fascinating. Yeah, so I'll just, you know, just to refresh people's memories, the classic story of Persephone and Pluto um, is pretty grim. It's basically that Persephone is the, the daughter of Demeter, the grain goddess, and she's just hanging out in a meadow one day, picking flowers, innocent young girl. And the ground opens up and this terrifying uh, king of the underworld and his giant black chariot with giant black horses comes, grabs her, takes her down to the underworld, marries her, rapes her, you know, keeps her kidnapped and away from the world that she knew and from her mother. And um, her mother goes looking for her and tries to bring her back to Mount Olympus. 
that she's already eaten six pomegranate seeds, which is the food of the underworld. So she can only go up half the year and the rest of the time she has to stay in hell with her rapist. Is not a happy story. And it was just, I had been doing existential kink work for a while and I had been pondering this story because it's part of the ancient mystery tradition that I'm, I'm very interested in. It was the main part of the Eleusinian mysteries. And one day I just sort of had this other vision. Is that, how, is that the what you named your child after? Yes, I named okay. my daughter Eleusis mm -hmm. after the place in Greece where they held those ceremonies. Cool. Um, so um, I was reading, oh, I think, yeah, I was reading a book of Greek history, and it was talking about how before there ever was a king of the underworld in Greek mythology, in the Greek mind, there was prime, one primary goddess, Kore. She was a mother goddess. She was the goddess of everything, of, of the underworld, of new life, of, and Kore may, sorry. Core means heart, like the heart, the core of everything. And that it seems that mythologically, historically, at some point, there was some innovations that happened. And Core, instead of being the everything, the all goddess, totally omniscient, totally all powerful, the story somehow changed into she was the, um, you know, the kidnapped and raped bride of Pluto, the king of the underworld. And my mind just started getting really, really curious about this. And suddenly, um, I just had different understanding of what happened. And, and that's the, the myth that I tell in the beginning of my book. So here's my version of the Pluto and Persephone story, which is that one day, Kore, the great goddess, the heart of everything, totally omniscient, totally omnipotent, completely all-powerful, um, whole and complete unto herself, containing everything. Uh, she just got really, really bored with being all-powerful, all-knowing, all-seeing. Um, she was just sort of floating around in that bliss continually for millennia, and it just got old. And she started having this thought, like, I wonder what it would be like to actually experience my own strength because I can't experience it because I'm whole, I'm undivided. There's no way for me to know myself and to experience myself. So she was pondering this and she decided to split herself in two so she could have an experience of herself and so that she could have an adventure so that she could feel totally powerless because she'd been only experiencing herself as all-powerful for so long. She wanted to know what powerlessness and fear and terror and all of that was like. Like watching so, a TV show or movie. Exactly. So she decided, well, I'm going to split myself into two polarities. I'll be um, the sweet, innocent, defenseless little girl over here. And then over here, I'll be this monstrous, evil, rapist, kidnapper guy. and. Um, I'll experience a drama. I'll experience this meeting of these parts of myself so I can feel them in a different way, so I can understand them better. So she set this whole thing into motion, divided herself, and the whole thing occurred. And then in my intuition of the story, one day she's in the underworld and she's feeling pretty awful because now she thinks she's just Persephone, this helpless, defeated young girl. And she um, 
takes the pomegranate, um, which is a, a beautiful fractal image of, you know, the womb and the female uh, genitalia and everything. And she eats six seeds, six in occult symbolism, Kabbalistic symbolism happens to be the number of the heart. And as she eats these seeds, they're sort of like um, seeds of, of her memory and of, of her own wholeness coming back in. And she remembers who she really is. She remembers that she is the great goddess Kore, the heart of everything, um, the, the center and the mother and omnipotent and omniscient. And she remembers that she created this whole terrible, intense experience for entertainment. And rather than having to feel wrong or terrible or victimized, she can actually just let herself appreciate the depth and the wildness of the entertainment that she engendered and her own courage and her own adventurousness. And as she begins to appreciate this and let the, the pleasure of it move through her, she recognizes that Pluto is part of her too. And then they uh, and not only is he part of her, but he's a part of her that was so willing to support her vast, intense, creative vision that he played the part of this super evil villain just because he wanted her to have the experience she desired of getting to uh, know herself in this different way. So then in my vision, they are uh, then happily married you know, two, you know, parts of the divine experiencing themselves um, in dialogue rather than in simple, you know, uh, unity. And that that dialogue, that duality is what we're all in right now. And, and we all have the option of beginning to remember ourselves um, as that divine that decided to experience duality. And this is something that I, I ponder about a lot because it, in some ways it's so unfair that we don't automatically remember being these great divinities. And it seems like we just are stuck here. We didn't ask to be here. All this stuff is happening to us against our wills. And boy, are we enslaved. I mean, we're just slaves to our habits, slaves to our bodies, slaves to money, slaves to other people's actions and judgments. And... Um, Anyways, so we have this veil of forgetting, and part of the work of any spiritual tradition is beginning to penetrate through that veil of forgetting to remember who we are. And one of the things that I think is really cool about existential kink and other tantric practices is that it really works with the, the actual electricity of the body to take this knowing into an embodied sexual emotional level and not just a, an intellectual level, because Lordy, I've been in so many hippie circles in my life where people are talking about how, you know, we're all divine, blah, 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 and they are, their lives are complete messes, and it's just like, <laughs> they're not, they haven't centered that in their bodies, and so they're not able to align their system with it. So something that I'm very, very interested in is helping people have really practical concrete, beautiful experiences of themselves in the world. And that's one of the things I like about EK is it helps people do that. Yeah. And what's uh, interesting is you just mentioned there's a physical component to it. It's not just thinking it's like, yeah, okay, I'm uh, 
an infinite being, I'm here, whatever. And then you forget about it when you're, out, you're off to work. But like, there's a physical component and uh, it seems necessarily sexual or, or is that just um, um, an easy lens in, in, or easy gateway into it, sexuality? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that it's not necessarily sexual in the sense that um, when we make conscious the unconscious enjoyment, the previously unconscious enjoyment that we may have had in something, uh, it can arise as a sexual level of enjoyment. It can also arise as um, like laughter or humor. Basically, it can um, come through different energy centers of the body uh, or just like a a melting warmth in the heart kind of thing. Uh, So, hmm. Is it necessarily sexual? I think, though, hmm, there is a part of me that wants to say yes, but I don't want to say yes because I know Uh that some people practice existential kink and they don't, they're never able to get to the sexual sensation, but they're still able to have it's uh, necessarily physical, right? Like, there has to be a sensation and might as well have it be a pleasurable one if you're gonna exactly. Yeah, because I noticed, I was surprised actually that later in your book you brought up, I mean, surprised only because I wasn't expecting it, um, uh, orgasmic meditation and that later. And um, I mean, I, I've, you know, I obviously was in that world for a long time and I've adopted this view or for a long time I viewed the world as like every moment is a stroke and I'm either stroking in resonance with reality or I'm not, or I'm getting off or I'm not. And uh, it, was, it was interesting because um, I shared your book with a friend who had never heard of Oming before me and didn't really know anything about it and she, she messaged me like a few days ago it's like i learned how to get off on everything i'm getting off on everything it's like oh it was, it was so weird to hear that from someone who had never heard of one taste i was like what <laughs> but uh, anyway um could you share a little bit about the stroke metaphor or maybe the literal side of it i'm happy to yeah um so um i learned a lot of interesting things in my time around the one taste world as I'm sure that you did too and I think that that teaching which obviously was based on clitoral stroking and then made into a metaphor of like everything in our experience is a stroke that started to affect me pretty deeply because um, one of the things that I I really enjoyed and benefited from an orgasmic meditation was the idea that um, most of the time most people will have a very small range of sensation that they will allow themselves to experience as pleasurable and that with practice and deliberate intention you can really expand that range of sensation so as i was working with orgasmic meditation i found that that was very true of me and my clitoris my clitoris starting out only had a small range of strokes that were that i knew how to experience as pleasurable and I became very interested in the idea of, of expanding that range. And I found that I could with practice in orgasmic meditation. And so then I started thinking about, you know, that saying, everything in life is a stroke. And in some ways, that was a big part of the inception of existential kink, because I got to be very, very curious, like, well, is that really true? Can I really expand the range of things I can enjoy in life? Like, can I enjoy getting a big, fat, unexpected bill in the mail? Can I enjoy (laughs) being dumped by somebody I have a crush on? You know, like, what can I really, really, I can enjoy that? Maybe, really? Well, maybe I really can, because I found out that I could do it, you know, with my body, with my genitals. Hmm, Let's try it. So that's um, one of the the ways that it arose for me. I also uh, 
friends, am friends uh, with uh, Leslie, whose last name for some reason is escaping me right now. Uh, Rogers. Rogers. Yeah. yeah. From Light Dark Institute. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And I love the work that he and his partner, Tawny, do. I think it's so brilliant. And Leslie, I, you know, I met him in one taste. And <laughs> he, of all people, seemed to take this idea of getting off on every stroke more seriously than anybody else. Like, I remember one day I talked to him. And uh, he seemed like he was really sad, like he was like crying. And I was like, Leslie, are you okay? And he was like, I'm so wonderful. Uh, but it wasn't happy <laughs> tears. It was still like, like miserable tears. And I was like, wait, are you sure that you're wonderful? It's okay. We can talk. And he was like, I just hate myself so much right now. And it feels so good. <laughs> 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 I was just like, and I had a number of those conversations with him because I thought at first that he was like being sarcastic or ironic or something. And I gradually realized he really wasn't. He really was learning how to like super enjoy these kind of devastating states that most people spend their whole lives hating and avoiding. Um, and so that example was inspiring to me. And I would be like, I'm going to practice until I can enjoy being humiliated as much as I know that Leslie is able to enjoy being humiliated. <laughs> and then, you know, you lose your fear of humiliation and the possibilities of life grow wider. Yeah, it was fun uh, revisiting these ideas uh, in, through your book after many years, because like, I, I was so into that. I was looking at life from our stroker's perspective of like, I need to stroke reality with perfect resonance. I need to tune into reality's body. And like, but viewing it from the strokey, the receiver's perspective is also interesting. Like in orgasmic meditation, a uh, uh, very practiced strokey has such a wide range that any... like the stroker can win with them with anything. Like they don't have to, as like, what is it like to have life win with me? Like, and, and that's been like a fun uh, way to look at things, like to actually be in connection with reality and maybe a more, yeah, the physical component makes it feel more real. Like a lot of these things may seem foreign until you feel it in your body. And yeah, stroking a clitoris is one way, <laughs> uh, at least analogously. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> analogously yeah. yeah yeah totally and it's it's really deep because it reminds me you know of all those wonderful roomy poems about like the beloved and the you know connecting with the divine as a lover and yeah and the the lover is stroking us in all ways all the time and we're stroking it through just existence yeah and i guess to bring it to maybe a, a way uh, newer people can like get it more like and even going back to the Persephone Pluto idea of like they were one person like if you're in a fight with your partner or like you feel oppressed by your narcissist uh, lover or whatever it is it's like to really adopt the idea of like oh we're doing this like drama together and we're like both working on this play together it really takes the edge off of whatever mean things you're saying to each other it does. And it allows you to forgive each other a lot quicker, I find. So like me and my husband, um, I like to call it improvisational theater when we have a fight. <laughs> we'll, you know, we'll absolutely say ridiculous things that we don't mean and we'll, you know, slam doors and yell and all the things. And it used to be like when our relationship was fairly new, we'd have one of these fights and then I would like, I wouldn't know how to get you know back to center again and it would be this big struggle to 
take us a week to get, you know, connected again. And now it's like, we can have one of those outbursts. <laughs> and 15 minutes later, I'll be like, oh, he was just saying that stuff in my head that I say to myself. And I can really see how I drew that out of him because I wanted to experience that externally instead of internally. And instead of having to be like, why was he so mean? How could he be so mean to me? It's just like, oh, I know exactly <laughs> how he was that mean. I drew it out with my, you know, little fun witch power there. So yeah, it makes it, you yeah. stop taking yourself so seriously. Yeah, because it's not like you develop stability necessary. It's more like you become fluid. It's like you don't get stuck in either direction. It's like more like being a clown. Um, uh, yeah, just being fluid. And even even Leslie's thing of like really being wonderful in tears. I mean, that's kind of like what clowns do for our entertainment, but to just be the clown, be the fool. That's an, yeah, that's an amazing deep thing. I was, you, you said it, the fool, like the, the zero in the major arcana, that's, that's what we all are anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so practicing it and realizing it is, I think, you know, a fantastic thing to do. Yeah. Um, I want to ask another procedural thing, um, because you used terms I'd never heard before, uh, salve and coagula. Mm -hmm. uh, could, could you share a little bit about that? Oh, absolutely. So those terms come from alchemy. So um, oh, I like to think that existential kink is part of the alchemy of the psyche, which Carl Jung and Joseph Campbell really started to bring to the forefront in the 20th century. Uh, the terms themselves have a relationship to... Um, to plant alchemy and metal alchemy. So the idea is that you take a substance and you dissolve it um, in order to then rearrange it, recoagulate it into a more potent form. So the example from plant alchemy would be, let's say I wanted to make um, a really powerful spagyric tincture. So I would take roses and I would take the actual flowers. Spagyric. Uh, yeah, so spagyric in plant alchemy is, <laughs> it's, it's a fancy kind of tincture. It's a tincture that's stronger than regular tinctures um, because it includes all three parts of the plant. It's alcohols, it's essential oils, and it's minerals that have been deliberately first separated and then recombined in a, in a fashion that makes the medicinal element of the plant more potent and more gotcha. active yeah so uh so exactly so if you you know if you eat a handful of rose petals not as much will happen to you as if you take a dropper full of rose spagyric um so the idea is you would soak the plant material in alcohol let it its oils will dissolve out into the alcohol and then you would um and the plant matter would start to decompose and then you would separate the alcohol from the plant matter um, and then you would incinerate the the rose petals soaked in alcohol until you had calcified them and they turned to ashes they'd been reduced to their minerals and then you would gradually reincorporate those minerals back in with the alcohol and the essential oils and then you have the spagyric tincture so this idea i think um, a simpler analogy to understand in nature, caterpillars, right? So caterpillars are, are just crawling around, eating leaves, and one day they spin themselves into a cocoon and they dissolve completely. They dissolve into goo. 
Um, and then they somehow manage, you know, through their DNA knows how to do this, they recoagulate themselves into a completely different shape um, that some might say is more beautiful and more evolved and more refined and more powerful than the initial caterpillar shape, right? The Usually the butterfly has a lot of colors to its wings. It's able to fly. The caterpillar wasn't able to fly. I think it's fascinating because in Greek, the Greek word psyche meant butterfly. That's what it meant first and foremost, hmm. butterfly. I didn't know that. I think that's very, very telling. I think that that tells us that they understood and that we need to understand that the psyche, in order to get to that more evolved, beautiful flying form um which is also fascinatingly symmetrical right like you look at a butterfly wings and they're like a rojork test they're like the little mandala unto themselves of symmetry um is we have to learn how to dissolve our old ways of being and reformulate ourselves and then we can have that whole psyche that is so much more powerful and so much more beautiful and has so much more possibilities to it than when we're just kind of crawling along. And, um, and that's what the alchemy of the psyche is all about. It's about learning processes, meditations, disciplines, um, indulgences that help us dissolve the old patterns and the old ways of being that are usually unconscious, usually inherited, usually have big influence from collective forces like family and politics and religion. Um, how we start to break those down so that our deepest essence of our soul that knows exactly what shape we want to be, um, that's fully individual, wholly original, can instead, you know, direct the shaping of how we are and, and we can be butterflies. Can you give an example of like the dissolution or the salve part? Because I, I'm sure most people can imagine like, oh, I'm going to build myself up. Most self-help is I'm going to build myself according to this intention. But what does it mean to dissolve or what does it look like to dissolve oh, yeah. uh, your caterpillar self? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, I think you, you are completely right about that. I always say that, which is that most all of self-help and magic and visualization and law of attraction is all about the coagula phase as if that were the only Thing. And most people have no notion what the solve phase is like. And the solve is actually the first phase. It's the, the most important in some ways. So um, for me, um, there's a few different processes that I use for solve. I love the work of Byron Katie. I love those inquiry processes of just like writing down a judgment. Is it true? Can I absolutely know that it's true? Who would I be without that thought? Um, or what oh, are you happens familiar with the Sedona method? Oh yeah, I love the yeah. Sedona method too. Similar, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Would I, would I let that go? Could I let it go? <laughs> so both both the Sedona method and um, the Byron Katie method, one of the ways that they accomplish their solve. So it's it's most obvious in the Byron Katie method. So it's like, how do I react when I believe that thought, and who would I believe with? Who would I be without that thought? So those questions bring up opposite. Um, experiences and they allow us to they they can um yeah it's like it, it precipitates a confrontation of the opposites and not take it so seriously mm -hmm. yeah yeah mm -hmm. so i guess to, yeah good same thing in the sedona method like some of the sedona method questions are can you let yourself feel 
as happy as you do about that? Can you let yourself feel as unhappy as you do about that? And it's kind of like whenever we bring those opposites together in close proximity, it can have that solve effect of dissolving attachment to rigid attachment yeah. to one side or the other. That's interesting, like looking at like, I guess, any kind of inner conflict, if you can really accept both sides of an argument, you have to take a, a higher perspective. Uh, yeah. So I guess I, I, I just, it just clicked for me now. <laughs> cool. <laughs> <laughs> that, that higher perspective is what Jung called the transcendent function. Mm-hmm. And that's what he also identified with the self with a capital S. And you're nailing it exactly. It's that learning to hold paradox, um, learning to, you know, two things can be equally true and really, really getting that. You can't, you can't live with that realization without centering yourself in the heart because mm-hmm. it's, it's not a brainy thing. It's, it's definitely mm-hmm. a heart thing. Um, and so likewise, existential kink, I think, is a brilliant solve practice because we are practicing bringing together our drama and our pleasure in it, our pain and our pleasure in it. And likewise, the two opposites, the more we bring them together and the more we are able to hold the paradox at once. So for example, in conventional law of attraction, if you're, if something you don't like, something in your life, let's say you're stuck in a job and you don't make a lot of money, um, they'll say like, just ignore that, focus on the positive, imagine your bountiful future, blah, 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 right? It's all about ignoring whatever the piece is that you don't like. Existential kink is not about ignoring anything. It's about saying like, yeah, I'm broke. It fucking sucks. It hurts. I'm humiliated. I feel these sensations of anxiety and worry, like that's happening. And also another thing that I'm willing to now become aware of that's happening is how much this is so fascinating and so much fun. And I'm letting myself enjoy this, this whole scenario. So bringing together simultaneously the pain and the enjoyment um, and, and holding that paradox takes us into that heart awareness that is connected to our larger self. And that's how um, we, so we liberate the energy in that old pattern. So this, you know, I keep using the financial situation because that was how I first started working with existential kink myself. So it comes most easily to mind um, because, you know, you, you knew me back in the day. I was living with roommates. So mm-hmm. it's always, you know, it was always a struggle for a while. Um, and then gradually it became way super easier. And I realized it had so much to do with um, as long as I was locked into this pattern of like feeling sorry for myself, of feeling like the world was against me and fate was against me. And it just was handing me this awful situation that I hated so much. And that was my only view of it, right? That was just like right here. Um, it was like I was locked. My energy was all locked into repeating that and just experiencing it again and again. And when I was able to do the solve with it through a combination of, of the Sedona method, of the work of Byron Katie, of existential kink, the energy that had previously gone into hating and resisting the situation now was like orgasmically liberated. It was just loosened up. And as soon as that energy was loosened up, I think it took, um, you know, it was a few weeks of me working on it in a really concentrated fashion. Uh, suddenly I had all sorts of ideas and all sorts of inspirations about how to make way more money in my business. And they weren't like 
they were pretty obvious. There were books about them. These were known business models. These weren't like crazy, you know, not that innovative, but it was like before I had done that Solvay work, I was just completely blinded to these possibilities. They were like, not for me. They were not even on the horizon. Like, ooh, running launches. Oh, that's so tacky. Why would I ever do that, right? Mm -hmm. Then after I did the Solvay work, I was like, you know what? I could do some internet. I could do launches. I could do that. I could do that. And then boom, boom, you know, suddenly way more money and way more fulfillment in my career. Yeah, so it's a lot of it's a drop of resistance, basically. I mean, you're 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 spending energy some way. You might as well do it in your direction. <laughs> yeah, I think you know that's like the Wayne Dyer quote: "Like what you resist persists." And mm-hmm. Eckhart Tolle talked a whole bunch about that too. And I think that is just so so true. So when we learn how to stop resisting things that we don't like and learn how to kinkily get off on them instead, all of that energy is liberated, and we can use it to shape and create different forms in our lives. Mm-hmm. Cool. I think we froze for a second, but oh, I think we're back. Oh, um, do you mind if we go a little bit over time? I have one last question topic. Um, no, it's, such a, it's such a pleasure to talk to you. Because well, I, I wanted to ask you about the occult, because, and uh, if you don't mind, if, I mean, if you don't want to speak about it, it's fine. But um, I think I heard you mention a while ago that like you're even raised in the kind of like a pagan I, I think you mentioned being in rituals when you're younger. Do you mind sharing a little bit about that? Because uh, everything I know of magic is more of a conceptual or metaphoric way of viewing the world. I'd love to hear about the real stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, we'll have to get you get you in a ritual sometime. Um, the real stuff. Okay, well, so I think the most beautiful rituals that I was a part of when I was young were um, put on by the local Druid group, and they had a beautiful liturgy. They would... Um, invoke different gods and goddesses surrounding the holidays of the solar year, so the summer solstice and the winter solstice, and such pageantry and such poetry. So there would be a priest and priestess, and they'd be dressed up, and there'd be, you know, carrying in offerings, you know, know, cakes and fruit and honey and wine. And was this, like, organized around a religion or, like, just an organization? Yes, the group was um, about uh, druidry, which there's a whole organization, I'm forgetting what it's like, American druid something, but it's like a inspired by recreations of those okay. so it wasn't like a secret society as no much. it wasn't a secret society no one one taste was probably the main secret society that i was gotcha <laughs> okay um i yeah they were all like free to the public advertised things so well okay i guess secret society my father was um a rosicrucian so um, I was also involved in that. So I was um, a Vestal Virgin in a Rosicrucian temple dedicated to Thoth when I was 11 years old. So gotcha. For me. Um, and that Rosicrucians are a secret, I mean, they're not really a secret society. You can sign up on the internet, you show up at your local Rosicrucian office, and you're like, hey, I will volunteer to bring salad every Sunday if you let me dress up. And they're like, okay, you're it. <laughs> but, but they do some pretty trippy stuff. Like they actually they practice telepathy and stuff like oh, yeah, that. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. yeah, All of it. No, I love the Rosicrucians. They're super deep. Um, I'm, I mean, I love, okay. So uh, the Druids, the Wiccans, the, um, the Rosicrucians, uh, the Thelemites. I'm, I'm fond of, of the whole, Alistair Crowley scene, although I've never really mm-hmm. super 
hung out with the official crowd. Um, yeah, there's so many different flavors and they're all so interesting, but I think if you want to get more into magic, Ruan, I can tell you that a really fun place to start is uh, planning and designing your own rituals and then taking some psychedelics and going out and doing mm -hmm. them. Yeah. <laughs> Finding out what yeah. I mean, that, that, <laughs> that type of magic I'm fairly familiar with. Oh, um, okay. I guess, uh, I mean, I don't, I mean, we don't have to get into this much, but uh, actually a member of the OM community shared this documentary with me out of the shadows. I don't know if you're familiar. It's about like the Pizzagate scandal. And I didn't, I wasn't really, I didn't, I mean, it was a conspiracy, so I kind of brushed it off, but I watched the thing anyway and had all these like satanic rituals where like really terrible things happen, like beyond metaphoric uh, mm -hmm. stuff. And I was like, man, I mean, I wonder how many, because I've, I've entertained Satanist, Satanism as like a concept of following your feelings. I read the Satanic Bible. I thought, oh, there's a lot of great metaphors in here. I, I, then when I saw like what people are actually doing with their allegedly doing with it, I was like, whoa, I, I, people I know like doing, I mean, I don't know. I was wondering if you had any um, familiarity with that kind of magic. Um, so uh, yeah, so Satanism, Anton LaVey, um, Okay, so let's see how do we say this. Um, I think in the magical world, it's exactly like every other part of the world. There's um, some folks practicing it who are super cool and um, super wholesome in a really deep, real way in the sense that they have explored and integrated usually um, imaginatively or through ritual or psychedelically all these various taboo parts of themselves and come into deep acceptance with them and and are just really awesome and then there's people who are uh imbalanced and don't really understand uh the i guess the deeper underlying principles and you know take some things in nutty directions. So I've, I have not ever personally witnessed anything that, um, I mean, all of my experiences of, of abuse were just sort of casual Appalachian abuse. <laughs> they weren't like uh, dedicated, you know, ceremonies to it. I, I do think that that probably happens in the world. I've, there's a very, very interesting book called, um, I think it's called The Game of Saturn, and it's actually about one of the first tarot decks that was ever created, which is very, very mysterious. Um, the, why can't I remember it now? Honey, Taya, are you around? The, the Solabuska, um, would you grab the book? Anyways, it's a book that it details very, very convincingly how the modern banking system was created through people practicing a form of Saturnian magic. So Saturn, you know, Saturn Satan. in astrology is associated with Satan. It's the adversary. It's um, mm -hmm. the force of time, limitation, the shadow, um, all of these things. Oh yeah. So here's, I'm just gonna pull up a picture for you or two. Um, but you can see it's it's this old Italian tarot deck. Mm -hmm. um, and the whole tarot deck depicts this kind of magic, including child sacrifice, which was at times in history associated with Saturnian gods. So um, 
like Moloch, like there was a whole, um, you know, everything. So I do kind of have a feeling that um, there are institutions still today in the world that are fueled by this particular kind of magic, which um, may involve actual harm to children. And that, of course, is very sad and and I would say completely unnecessary and and misguided. But I guess they might see it as necessary in the sense that this particular kind of magic is um, very intense, obviously. Like any time that you're uh, creating that kind of harm, it, it opens up you could say even like rips in space time it 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 has a lot of sensation there's a lot of sensation there's there's a an efficacy to it in that dimension and that it 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 unleashes a lot of um power that can be channeled into really long-term goals like the long-term control of the economy or the currency system or you know like there's um So I would never say that there's nothing to that. And I would also say that by the same token, so the kind of magic that, for example, the the Saturn, the game of Saturn is what it's called, the game of, um, the kind of magic that's a certain kind of theurgy. And like I said, it's theurgy associated with Saturn. There's other kinds of theurgy. So theurgy just means um, God work, like working with deities to produce magical change. So there's other kinds of God work that are much more benevolent, let's say. So I've worked a lot with Venus, and that work is all about beauty and harmony and sensuality and and fun things like that. Well, thank you for thank you for raising the question, Ruan, because it's yeah. an important thing that should be touched on when we when we talk about these matters, because it's certainly like, um, you know, I guess one of the ways that I think about it is that magic, the occult, all of the correspondences, all of the deities, it's a form of technology. It's a form of, of technology that we can navigate. And, you know, technology can be used for beautiful purposes in beautiful ways, or it can be used in very kind of twisted ways. Yeah, I mean, the closest thing I can relate to it is the Star Wars universe, where the dark side of the force is typically stronger in one-on-one confrontation, but obviously it deals with pain and the negative, terrible things, um, but it's less sustainable. I don't know. I guess that's maybe more true in real life than I previously considered. Um, anyways, <laughs> uh, yeah, thank you so much for, for this is very enlightening. Um, I'm making notes of things I want to do EK with in my own life. Um, your books on Amazon, it's everywhere where books are sold, right? Yeah, and Audible. I, I'm excited for Oh, yeah. I listened yeah. to the Audible, and I appreciate that it was read by the author. It was great. Yeah. Um, and uh, where else can people find out about your work? I know you have a bunch of courses and other fun mm-hmm. things. Um, so if folks go to my website, which is carolyngraceelliot.com, um, especially carolyngraceelliot.com slash free, they can enter their email address um, through the forms on the site, and they will be added to my email list, which is the main way that I communicate about things that I'm doing. Um, and they can also follow me on Instagram. I'm at Carolyn Elliott underscore. Um, and the main, so I've sort of channeled the focus of my work into one main program. It's called Wealth, and 
It's fabulous. We have really intense community socializing and bonding. We do the old turn on games. Uh, we call nice. them power ups now, and we do those on Zoom. And um, we have, I do mentorship sessions surrounding both business and esoteric alchemy of the psyche stuff. Uh, and yeah, it's delightful. So I, I will be reopening that at the end of May. So if folks tune into my Instagram and my email list, they can hear way more about wealth. And a cool thing about wealth is the practices that I teach in there. Um, folks have had an average influx of income of $50,000 associated with these practices. And that's usually Sweet. just getting for people. So I call nice. it wealth because it's about physical, spiritual, emotional, financial wealth. Awesome. Yeah. Super exciting. Well, thank you so much. This has been super fun. Yeah. Likewise, Ron. Great to see you. Bye-bye. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening to the podcast. If you want to catch the rest of my work, go to Rwando.com. Catch me on social media at Rwando. And please do not forget to subscribe.